Why don't you pray with me real quick? Dear Heavenly Father and Lord, I thank you that we get to come together on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning and just be the church gathered for a short time before we become the church scattered once again. Lord, I thank you for your word and the opportunity that we get to have to have um, access to it that we do. There are many believers across this great world that do not have a Bible, they do not have daily access to your word, and, and we take it for granted so many times. Lord, I just ask that you would open our hearts this morning and that we would just hear your word the way you intended it. In your son's name I pray, amen. Well, good morning, Freshwater. My name is Eric Call, and I'm a partner here at Freshwater. It is my honor to get to speak to you all this morning. I thank Pastor Joshua for the opportunity. If you all have your Bibles with you this morning, would you please go ahead and open them to John chapter 17. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, that's page 903. While you're turning there, I just uh, wanted to talk about something real quick. I don't know, I'm sure that many of you probably have had a grandparent or a parent or maybe yourself even that cans food. Canning has been around for years as an incredibly effective way to store food for a long period of time. Many people store their fruit and vegetables from their gardens and eat out of them all year long or give them as gifts to people for them to enjoy. Now, nobody in my family, family in particular canned on a regular basis, but one of my really good friends makes some of the best pickled okra you've ever eaten. Now, one time when I was visiting him, he was showing me how he did everything in this process. The interesting thing to me was how much time and care he spent on preparing the okra before it was canned, and then how he continued that same care and how he stored it after it was canned. He would take all the jars that he canned and he would store them in his topmost shelf at the back of the pantry. That way they couldn't be disturbed in the daily use of the kitchen or be mistaken for okra that was ready to be eaten. You see, the pickling process, it, just, it takes time. If it's rushed or open too quickly, it won't be any good. It's not ready for it to be used for its ultimate purpose. That's why my friend takes so much time making sure that it's preserved until his time is perfect. You see, our Heavenly Father does the same thing with our souls. He takes his time developing us, calling us to him, readying our jar, so to speak. Once we accept his gift of salvation, he puts the lid on us and he puts us in the safest place possible, his hands. Now, for those of you who spent much time in a Baptist church, you've probably heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. And while we would agree with this statement, um, I think I speak with a lot of us when I say that that saying is kind of skin deep. And, and I think a lot of us in here probably would prefer to use the term preservation of the saints because it's God that preserves us. You see, if our salvation was completely up to us, we would lose it so fast it wouldn't even be funny. God has to preserve that salvation for us, hence the term preservation of the saints. The good news is that we can trust in our Heavenly Father to rest in that preservation. So today, we're going to look at the reasons why God preserves us and wants us to find assurance in his preservation. Now, as Pastor Joshua stated last week, we're going to be going back through John 17. For those of you who weren't here last week, Pastor Joshua shared that John chapter 17 is commonly known as the high priestly prayer. And it is also the last chapter in the book of John before Jesus is arrested and ultimately crucified. So we see in John 17, we see three ways that Jesus prays in this prayer. First, he prays for himself. Secondly, he prays for his disciples. 
And thirdly, he prays for his disciples in the future. Now last week, this week, and next week, we are looking at three different themes that run along parallel with Jesus' prayer. So last week, Joshua went through chapter 17 with you all and looked at how Jesus prays for oneness and unity in the church. This week, we are looking at how Jesus preserves us. We get a really good look at Jesus' heart in the high priestly prayer on this manner and see just how he preserves us. Now, you're going to read through the whole high priestly prayer in your life groups this week. So uh, I'm going to just kind of tell you real quick, in the, in the sake of time, that the first five verses of the high priestly, high priestly prayer are all about Jesus praying for his glorification. And being as we're looking at how he preserves us today, we're going to go ahead and kind of skip through to some of those specific, uh, verses in specific. So first five verses are about Jesus praying for his glorification. So if you would pick up with me in your Bibles... We're going to read through verses 6 through 11. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. What do we see in these verses? We see in verses 9 through 11 especially that Jesus is praying for his followers. Which, frankly, brings us to the first reason why we, come, we can rest in our preservation. Because Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is interceding for us. Interceding is another way of saying that Jesus is praying for us. But it, it kind of takes a little bit more of a different tone than I think than what we kind of associate praying as. See, the definition of interceding is to intervene. Almost like a lawyer would do for a client. It, it's somebody that speaks on your behalf. So, as we, as we talk about... Anytime you see in this text, if we talk about praying or we see praying, I want you to think of it in the context of Jesus is interceding for us. So, Jesus is interceding for us. Jesus is specifically asking the Father to keep his disciples in his name. Now, many scholars agree that the 17th chapter of John is kind of like a condensed version of everything that Jesus has taught in the book of John so far. Um, and you know, so we kind of get some highlights of Jesus' ministry in, in a way. So, you know, think that one of the highlights that we have here, Jesus' relationship with us, revolves around his interceding for us to keep us in his name. Look at verse 9 with me real quick. Verse 9 says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Look, Jesus isn't just randomly praying some blanket prayer over the whole world. He is praying specifically for his church and for the individual believers that make it up. Believer, Jesus is specifically praying for you. I mean, to think of the heavenly power right now that is pouring out over you in this room. Jesus is praying for you, as you where you sit. You know, to give me a little bit of context of the heart of Jesus at this moment, I mean, think about it. Jesus knows his death is imminent. This is literally hours before he's arrested and then crucified. He knows what's coming, the lashing, the beating, having a crown of thorns pressed into his skull. 
followed by the humiliation and pain of being hung naked by a Roman cross. To think that Jesus knows all, the, all this, and yet a massive amount of the Savior's attention is focused on keeping us in his name. What a relationship we have. I mean, that's good news, folks. That the God of the universe cares enough about us, not only to save us, but then to go even one step further and keep us in that salvation. This isn't just a one-time act. A relationship like that isn't broken by our mere human selves. Sinners, we all are, but Jesus is bigger, way bigger than that. When we drift side to side from the path that God has for us, Jesus is interceding for us. Through God's Holy Spirit who lives in all believers, he keeps us in his name. When we get off one side, conviction of the Holy Spirit draws us back. When we, li- when we stray to the other, the conviction of the Holy Spirit draws us back. If the Holy Spirit lives in us, the Bible says we are his temple, then we have the guide right there. Why would we drift away from that? The Holy Spirit will pull us back when we are not in his path. So we've just seen the first way that Jesus preserves us, by interceding for us. So now we're going to look at the second way Jesus preserves us, which is Jesus guards us. Look at, verse with me, look at uh, verses 12 through 19 with me. We're going to read through these real quick. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. See, Jesus not only intercedes for us, but he straight up guards it. He guards our hearts. He guards our souls. You can't mince that word. If you want to look a different way, if you look at the, uh, the, the word guard, there are other root words that tie right in alongside with like um, shield and wall. So think about when Jesus says in verse 12, I have guarded them. I mean, he is literally saying, I have shielded them. So real quick, now I know, know that, I know, don't know everybody in here, but those of you that know me very well know that I like movies, and my number one movie of all time is Braveheart. Thank you. That's thank you. Thank you. Now, for those of you who haven't seen the movie Braveheart, it's about the Scottish rebellion from England in the 1200s. So, good old-fashioned, you know, medieval warfare, chopping people up, man movie, man movie. But for those of you who haven't seen it, and uh, those of you who have seen it, you may recall that there's a scene in the movie where the enemy is charging the hero Scots with horses, and the hero William Wallace is just standing there with his army holding crude clubs, pitchforks, and broken swords. And as the enemy charges what looks to be this weak, armorless rabble, the, the, they just, the, the heroes just wait, holding their place, not moving, not flinching. They're just waiting, holding, holding, holding. And at the last minute, when the horses are right on top of them, they drop to their knees and they grab these long wooden spears that were hidden there from the enemy's sight, raising them up and stopping and slaying the enemy in their tracks. They never saw it coming. Well, the reason why I chose this is because this is a similar picture to the spiritual battle that is going on around 
on, around us all the time. Satan is always prowling, looking to devour, charging us to try to keep us out of God's name. But just as he is bearing down and it looks like we don't have what it takes, Jesus pulls up the defense that has been there all along, just out of sight. He slays the enemy and our souls are guarded so that we can go out and do the works for another day. So picking back up, look at verse 15 with me real quick. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you, that you keep them from the evil one. You see, Jesus doesn't want you out of the fight. He, but he wants you well guarded. That's why when he says he guards us, he gives, he's our shield. But he doesn't want you out of the fight. Just like we talked about in the illustration, Jesus is our guard. So even though he puts us right on the front lines, it's his fight. He will be our shield. We are in the fight, and we're throwing swings at the enemy. But when the enemy swings back, Jesus is there to shield us. He is there as our guard to block against Satan's attacks. A pretty good way to judge if we're living in God's will is, is frankly, just see how much Satan is fighting us. You know, remember, the fighting is the fiercest on the front line, so that's where Satan's going to attack the most. You know, fighting's hard. It's probably where God wants you. You're doing his work. It's upsetting the enemy. Trust that his guard is stronger, though, because it is. As difficult as the times may be when spiritual attacks are coming at us left and right, no, his word is truth. His word is strength. His word is our guard. He is our shield. Now, I know some of you in here, and um, I don't want to come across as being too shallow or you think you don't understand me, because frankly, I probably don't. But I know some of you probably got some real trials in your life. And maybe nothing I can say is going to be able to give you comfort in that. Maybe, I don't know, but if, if so, I'm going to try my best. You know, maybe that that fight I'm talking about, it may not seem very spiritual, but very physical. You know, uh, family issues, health issues. I mean, if it's not you, it's maybe somebody you know or very close with. These are very real fights, and it may not seem like just a throw up the Jesus shield and win the battle kind of thing, but Jesus still guards us. He still preserves us. Like Pastor Josh, we talked about unity in the church last week. Sometimes Jesus guards us by sending others to be alongside with us in our difficult times. Although the fight may take our whole lives, he never leaves our side and gives us the promise of eternity. He never stops being our guard. And we live in a fallen world, people. So, I mean, that's just the truth of the world that we are in right now. It's not our home. We're just passing through. And there will be extreme pain and suffering that God never intended for us. But like I said, it's not our home. So moving on, I want you know we've just seen that Jesus preserves us by interceding for us and guarding us. But while we're in these section of verses 12 through 19, some of you probably caught something as we were reading through there. And it may just kind of throw up a little red flag. So I want to address that. Some of you may be saying, hey, Eric, what about that son of destruction guy? You're talking about how Jesus is so strong and we can't be lost. What about him? It says back there that he was lost. So let's talk about son of destruction. What does it mean that the son of destruction was lost? Or that the scripture would be fulfilled? I mean, it seems like he lost his salvation. I mean, I think it's talking about Judas. You know, the guy that kind of just sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Well, 
see, in the context that we see in the high priestly prayer, the son of destruction is referring to Judas Iscariot. So if you guess that, you're right. The disciple that betrayed Jesus. So let's talk real quick about what is said about the son of destruction in Scripture. The son of destruction is never a direct quote from anywhere else in the Bible in regards to Judas, but instead in every other reference refers to Satan. So that leaves us with the question of what Scripture is to be fulfilled. Well, there's much debate between scholars on the issue, and ultimately we don't have enough time to go down that road too far. But, you know, for the sake of the day, we'll simply address that the title can be translated a couple of different ways. And we're, I'm just going to read a couple of different Bible translations so you can kind of get a, a little bit of a grasp of how this meaning might kind of take on him. So in this verse here, the New International Version has it as, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so the scripture would be fulfilled. The New Living Translation says, I have guarded them so that none was lost except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. And then the King James Bible says, and I'm going to try to not mess this up, those thou, thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Say that three times. I guarantee it. Now, the word perdition is perhaps one of the best translated words because of its word basis. If we look at the King James Version, we see the word perdition occurs eight times in the Bible. In each of these cases, it denotes the final state of ruin and punishment, which forms the opposite to salvation. The verb apollyon, from which the word is derived, has two meanings, loss and destruction. So essentially, perdition is the exact opposite from salvation in Greek. So you could safely title Judas the son of eternal death. Great title, huh? So ultimately, whether predestination, foreknowledge, God specifically allowed Judas to be turned over to Satan so that Christ would be betrayed and his purpose on this earth fulfilled. Remember, we gain salvation because Christ went to the cross. The other thing you need to understand is that Judas didn't lose his salvation in this process. Even though he followed and heard the words of eternal life, they never impacted his soul. We can just see in other places in the scripture that his lifestyle never showed that of a lifestyle that was a Christ follower. He was always looking at himself and what was good for himself and how to advance himself. And one could even make the argument that the fact that he was following Jesus in the first place showed just how inwardly focused he was because at the time, it was a cool thing to do if you were following a rabbi. So it's no different than anything else when we can look holy on the outside, but inwardly it's nothing. It's dead. So I say all this theological mumbo-jumbo to bring to this point in which why all this matters to us. Why does it matter, Eric, that if I know my salvation is secure? Why does it matter if I know God's preserved? I mean, I'm still believing, right? You know, that's all that really matters. Yes, and I'm not saying that just because somebody doesn't believe you can lose your salvation doesn't mean that, that somehow they're not a Christian or anything like that. No, but the reason why Jesus wants us to have confidence and assurance in that preservation is found, frankly, I feel in 20 through 26, when we see the mission of what Christ is praying for. So read with me real quick. On verse, we'll start in verse 20. We'll finish out through the rest of John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me. That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love, love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you may have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Folks, the purpose of everything we talked about today so far is it's kind of wrapped up right here. Jesus intercedes for us. He guards us all that the world may believe in his name. His whole purpose for glorifying us, sanctifying us, is so that the world may know of his love. See, you know, this is why he does this. This is why he preserves us. We can't be effective witnesses for him if we are caught up in worrying, if we say or do something wrong, that our salvation is just going to get yanked away. It, it, that's, not, that's not effective. You spend your whole life on this earth just thinking about, oh man, what it, well, I better go talk to that person because if I don't, then Jesus is just going to yank my salvation away. Or, oh man, I said, I said the wrong thing. I said the wrong thing to that guy. You know, I better not get hit by a bus before I can you know, have a chance to ask for forgiveness. No! The cross is sufficient. The cross is sufficient. You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I just I, I don't see in Scripture, I don't see how you can be bold in the face of the enemy if, you, if you're not even confident in the power of the Savior. You have the shield of God. I mean, you are a shield, sealed child of the one true king. What good news is this? Now, my time up here is done. And Pastor Joshua is going to come up here and he's going to give some finishing thoughts because the dude's frankly a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> not true. as pretty, though. No, that's true. Not, that's not true. as good looking. I'm sorry. I completely agree with that. But he's going to come up here and give you some final thoughts on this matter and uh, just, just talk about a little bit more about what this looks like and, you know, talk to you about what, what preservation, why, you know, a little bit more about what that looks like as far as how do you even get preserved in the first place. Absolutely. So thank you, Joshua. Very good. Thank you, Eric, so much. This is one of the, and what Eric touched on today is one of the most practical, um, life-changing, life-impacting um, doctrines that we have in all of God's word, that when your life is truly changed, it's, it's truly changed. It's forever transformed. Um, I love that you talked about the son of destruction and what exactly that looks like. So I want everybody to understand that. I want you to understand what, where this is coming from. Um, uh, remember that Eric said when in verse 12, when he's talking about the son of destruction and, and, um, and what that looks like and how that's Judas, if you remember just a couple chapters ago, right after Jesus washes the feet of the disciples and when he is instituting what we call communion or the Lord's Supper, um, right after that event, the Bible says that Satan entered Judas. So when we look at that phrase, son of destruction, everywhere else, or son of perdition, and everywhere else it's used in the New Testament, it's referring to Satan. Jesus can very easily pray at this point, knowing the course of the Gospel of John, knowing what was going to be recorded, and he can call 
Judas, the son of destruction, knowing that we just covered a couple months ago that Satan has entered Judas. So um, when we think about Judas, this guy who um, you know, sells the whereabouts of Jesus to the religious leaders and ultimately brings about the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, we can understand that this guy, uh, he's incredibly religious, right? He knows the Bible. He was the treasurer for the ministry. Do you remember that? He was the one taking care of the money. He was skimming off of the top. So when we think about this guy who is so close, it seems, to Christ, now he can turn away and walk away from the gospel. Um, This tells us that it's completely possible to look like you're following Jesus in every way. It's completely possible to be serving God It's completely possible to be surrounded with legitimate followers of Jesus Christ. It's completely possible to be ultra-religious, right? It's completely possible to have all of those characteristics in your life and still internally be in complete and total rebellion against God. Like, that's the truth. And I don't know you as well as I wish that I knew you. And Eric doesn't know you as well as he wishes that he knew you. But I bet that is some of you. And you've been going through this thing for a long time. You've been doing this Judas thing. You're not malicious in your sin. You're serving. You're nice to people. You give. You do all those things. You're religious in every outward way, but your heart is in rebellion against God. So as we read through the high priestly prayer these weeks, and we see that Jesus in the middle of this prayer prays about this guy who rejected him, I would just encourage you, man, if that's you, this does not lead to a place that you want to go. Give it up. Submit to Christ. Begin following him. So let me just kind of recap a little bit about what this doctrine means and then I will be about done. Because this, this doctrine of how, how God can save us and God can seal us and God can take hold of us and, and God can care for us, this can be easily distorted to, to, to mean something that it doesn't really mean. So here, let me just kind of give you a, a quick rundown of what this, what this doesn't mean. If we believe that God preserves us, that true Christians really persevere to the end, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the way that you live doesn't matter. So don't hear, well, I'm a Christian now, I can live like a heathen, I can live in the world, I can pay no attention to God, His ways, His people, anything about that. Uh, Don't hear that, that I can follow Christ and then the life that I live doesn't matter because God has sealed me. No, because evidence that that is your heart condition is probably evidence that you're not really following Christ in the first place. So don't hear that the way that you live doesn't matter. Secondly, don't hear that God preserves us And then don't hear, well, that means that everybody that claims to be a Christian really is. Because there are a lot of people out there that are claiming to be Christ's followers, Judas would be an example, who are claiming to have their heart transformed, but God can read the heart, God knows exactly what's going on internally, and God knows who's really a Christian and who's not. So don't hear that everybody that claims to be a Christian really is. And then thirdly, don't hear that God holds people in His hand against their will. Don't hear that at all. Uh, Think about this. Think about Peter. We saw this just a couple months ago as well. If you remember in John chapter 6, what happens? I'm going to step out of the light and walk around a little bit, okay? Um, If you remember in John chapter 6, what happens? Jesus 
um, feeds the 5,000 with a couple loaves of bread and some fish. Right after that, what teaching does he give? He gives the teaching on being the bread of life. He calls himself the bread of life. So as he's feeding people and giving them free food, the crowds swell because who doesn't like free food, right? We see it in events all the time. If we publicize free food, everybody shows up. We all love free food. But as Jesus comes along and then he calls himself the bread of life and he begins to reveal to everybody that, hey, this is more than just getting free fish and free bread. I am the bread of life. You've got to follow me. What happens? Everybody scatters. Just people leave. They don't want anything to do with that. They want free stuff, but they don't really want Jesus. Well, right after that account, Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, hey, what about the rest of you? Look at the crowds. Look how everybody ran away. Look how nobody wants anything to do with me as soon as I pull away the benefits. Is that going to be you? Are you next? Are you going to run away? And Peter turns around and oftentimes speaking for the entire group, what does he say? He says, Jesus, you got the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? One of my favorite statements in the entire Gospel of John. He looks at what has happened. He sees how the vast majority of people want to run away from Christ after he pulls off the welfare. And Peter speaks and he says, what else would we do? You have the, the words of eternal life, Jesus. So what we've seen happen in Peter's life and continue to happen through Peter's life, and I would say happening in your life if you're a follower of Christ, is that God changes you in such a way that you would never have a desire to leave Him. I mean, I think about... I've seen some stuff happen in Christian's life, okay? And we've been blessed not to have anything catastrophic happen to us. But I've seen some stuff, let me tell you something. And, and I've seen people who've been able to look into the eyes of that and find hope and peace in the fact that they are followers of Christ. To the point where even in the midst of some of the most terrible circumstances I could ever imagine, they would never, ever, ever contemplate or desire leaving Jesus. So it's not that God preserves you, perseveres you, and, and now you're trying to sprint away from Him and He just keeps running out and grabbing you and pulling you back like you're a disobedient child. It's that God does such a work in your heart that you actually want Him. And you want Him more than you want the world. That's what this doctrine is about. That's how that works. So it's not God you know, forcing you to do anything. Here's really what this comes down to, and then I'm going to be about done. It means that God is big enough, God is strong enough, God is powerful enough, God is loving enough to hold you and to keep you. He can do that. So as you go out into the world, if you're following Christ, if you've repented and believed, guess what? You don't have to live with this constant burden. Am I in or am I out? Has it happened? Has it not happened? Now for some of you, you need to repent and believe for the first time. And I'm here to tell you that if you will repent and believe for the first time, you enter into this covenant relationship where God takes care of you. He holds you. He preserves you. And I want to encourage you to do that right now. Just right there where you sit and just say, Lord, I want to give up myself. I want to die to myself and I want to begin following you. I ask you to forgive me for my sins. And as I ask for forgiveness, I want to begin following you in every way of my life. And if you will do that right now where you sit, the Bible tells us that God saves you. And you enter into this relationship where God makes you more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. Now we're going to stand and we're going to sing in just a second. And as we stand and as we sing, I'm going to stand at the connect table located in the foyer there. And if you want to step out and come back and talk with me about what that looks like and what it looks like to follow Christ and how you enter this covenant relationship with God, I would be ecstatic to talk with you about that. Um, Also just know that here in just a second when we sing, 
Um, the uh, service hosts are going to come forward and they're going to pass the offering baskets. And that's when we give you an opportunity to worship through giving. So know that if you're um, a guest with us this morning, we don't expect you to give at all. This is the time when the partners and regular tenders of Freshwater give their tithes and offerings. um, And you have an opportunity to do that as we sing in just a second. So I'm going to pray for us and then we'll uh, stand and we'll um, rejoice because of what we've seen in God's word. Heavenly Father and Lord, I thank you, God, for loving me, and I thank you for loving our church. I thank you for giving Eric this word. I thank you that it's based on your scripture. I thank you that when properly understood, this is one of the most encouraging doctrines that we see in all of God's word. 